Happy Friday, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here on the Texans Weekly Roundup podcast. Today, our team talks through new bills that became effective in Texas this week. Election reform finally making its way to the governor's desk. What to expect during the final days of the second special session. The U.S. Supreme Court allowing implementation of the heartbeat bill. Efforts to strip Democrats of their leadership positions after they fled the state, a new Democrat-led redistricting lawsuit, the results of the latest special session, school districts taking new approaches to mask mandates, TxDOT parting ways with a vendor after millions of dollars of overcharges were billed to customers, and Bear County's ongoing battle with the state over mask requirements. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Brad Johnson, Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, and Isaiah Mitchell. We have all sorts of topics to get into this week. A lot is happening in Texas, and we're going to go ahead and start right off the bat with Hayden and Isaiah to chat with uh, them about 10 bills that became law this week. Boys, y'all wrote a piece together uh, taking a look at the September 1 effective date for a lot of these bills that were passed by Texas legislators during the regular session. So while Walk us through some of these proposals um, and what they do and why they're important. Well, just for some background, the Texas Constitution requires that bills take effect 90 days after the legislative session or at least 90 days after. So September 1 usually falls uh, 90 days and some change after the regular legislative session and the year's that lawmakers meet. So that's why September 1 is a significant date. Other laws take effect immediately after they are signed by the governor because they receive a two-thirds majority vote in each house. But most of these laws did not, so they take effect on Wednesday of this week. And there are lots of hot-button issues, one of which is constitutional carry. Uh, Our very own Daniel Friend has covered that extensively. But now in the state of Texas, you do not have to have a permit to carry a handgun on your person. And of course, there are still some exceptions to that, like you can't carry it in some gun-free zones like courthouses and school zones as well. You also can't carry when you're intoxicated off of your own property. So there are still some exceptions, but that was a bipartisan law that was passed and that took effect on Wednesday. Texas becomes the 20th state to legalize permitless carrying firearms. Then you also have resign to run legislation. It's more of a political uh, landscape bill that requires that political parties, that if someone wants to run for a statewide office and they have, uh, they are an office holder in a state political party, they have to resign that position before they run. And the background of that is that legislation was uh, enacted by the legislature just a few days before Alan West, who was the Republican Party of Texas chairman at the time, uh, announced his resignation and then a month later announced his campaign for governor. So that's the resign to run bill. And then um, Brad has reported on this extensively, the police defunding restrictions. Uh, The legislature put some policies in place that apply to larger cities and is meant to deter them from what has become known as defunding uh, police departments or redirecting funds from public safety to other projects within the city. So cities that substantially, uh, Uh, remove funds from their budgets, uh, could face a property tax freeze in the following fiscal year, and they could also face a, I believe it's a 10-year ban on annexation. So that those deterrents will be in place for cities who defund their police. Um, And then the Star-Spangled Banner Act 
which came into being after it was rumored and then later confirmed that the Dallas Mavericks have stopped playing the national anthem before their games. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick made it a priority uh, to advance a bill that prohibited state contracts or any other taxpayer funding for sports teams in the state of Texas unless they provide written verification that they are going to play the national anthem for people to sing prior to games. And he touted that as a bill that was meant to advance patriotism and to preserve the time-honored tradition of singing the national anthem before sports. Um, and so those are just a few things that uh, I covered in this uh, piece. And then um, Isaiah, if you want to go over some of those others. Yeah, sure. Um, so con carry is a big deal, obviously in Texas. Um, I feel like if that's the boys are back in town, then the suppressor bill is like vagabonds of the Western world. <laughs> it's a thin lazy joke. Forget about it. Anyway, so <laughs> the legislature passed a bill that um, could lead to a pretty, the, probably the first major legal challenge to the NFA out of Texas, maybe since it was passed in 34. I don't know. I, that's that's a long legal claim. But um, basically, the NFA, the National Firearms Act, has a lot of regulations for dealing and buying suppressors or silencers for firearms. And those include a $200 tax stamp, and a registration process that if you're not registering with a trust can take your fingerprints and some other data. And the legislature passed a bill that exempts suppressors that are made in Texas from these requirements. And so it'll be cheaper and a less burdensome process to buy a suppressor if it's made in Texas. Uh, Daniel actually, again, our, I guess our gun guru turned me on to um, some interesting legal history from Kansas, which apparently passed a similar law. And after it was passed, the news was out in Kansas and everything. And um, there are just a couple of regular citizens that tried to buy a suppressor. And now they've got felony charges because the government or the federal government said that they wouldn't acknowledge the law. The ATF has done the same thing in Texas and warned Texas dealers that federal law still applies. But um, the first step in the Texas bill is for dealers to approach the attorney general and ask him to get a declaratory judgment that the law is constitutional. And so as of yesterday, that can start happening, which would be an interesting legal challenge. Uh, the Heartbeat Act, to bury the lead, also took effect yesterday. Legally, that's another big deal. Constitutionally, um, we'll talk in a little bit how it, it reached the Supreme Court, and that, that made it the first abortion-related challenge to Roe v. Wade since Justice Ginsburg died. So there's just a lot of history being made there, and we'll describe it in more detail in a little bit. Uh, the critical race theory bill and its original passage, HB 3979, took effect today. That's one that Republicans in the legislature have been trying to clean up by their standards in the two special sessions that have followed. And um, But HB 3979 is state law, and it took effect today. And we've described that one ad nauseum, so I won't go into detail about it. Um, another interesting bill, uh, if you'll recall, during the Trump administration, he issued a regulatory rule regarding uh, price transparency for hospitals. <laughs> and um, the legislature passed a Senate bill that codifies that in statute. So under the law, hospitals must maintain a list of all standard charges and make them easily accessible to the public and free of charge to access. So that's a new law that also took effect yesterday. Well, thank you both so much for that. And we'll continue to monitor any other bills that become law. The enacting dates, the effective dates are 
just like Hayden mentioned, an interesting constitutional just tenet. Um, so thank you, boys, for that. Daniel, we're going to come to you now. The major election reform bill uh, that Democrats had, you know, incredible objection to throughout this whole process was the, you know, the crux of why they left the state and broke quorum uh, saw its final votes in the legislature this week. So tell us a little bit about what that was like. Yes. Yeah, so Senate Bill 1 passed both the House and the Senate this week. It was surprisingly anticlimactic. There were uh, no additional walkouts from Democrats in the House. Um, well, there were a bunch of members who did not show up, but um, there, there was enough for a quorum. And there was also no uh, filibuster in the Senate. In, in fact, they didn't even talk uh, nearly as long as they did uh, in the regular session when it was at a similar stage. Uh, so Senate Bill 1, the election bill has gone through. It passed both chambers. Um, there was a conference committee report, which is what happens when uh, the two chambers don't agree on the, the bill that they passed, and so they work out the differences. Uh, the difference between the version that came out of the House and the conference committee report uh, that was approved by both chambers was not terribly big. There was one amendment that was added by the House um, that was uh, supposed to help uh, that the House intended to help people who uh, accidentally don't realize that they're not legally allowed to vote and they go and vote, uh, not be penalized uh, for that accident. Uh, but the Senate and uh, some people were concerned that that would allow illegal immigrants to vote or non, non-American citizens to vote. And so <clears throat> uh, that's why they... Uh, decided to go ahead and cut that amendment out of process uh, through the conference committee report. After that happened, then the both chambers voted on the conference committee report and passed that out. Tell us when the law will go into effect and what some of the provisions are. So after Governor Abbott signs it, which he has indicated that he will, it will go into effect about three months after the last day of the special legislative session. Um, so since the last day of this special session is just around the corner on, I believe, Sunday, September 5th, uh, then that puts the enactment date or the date that it will go into effect uh, in uh, kind of early December. Now, of course, that's uh, not right around the corner, not like immediately, but it is long before uh, any big elections are happening. So um, that will give some time for uh, that to go into effect. Um, <clears throat> some of the provisions included in the legislation is it's a pretty big bill, about 75 pages, and uh, you know, some of it increases legal protections for poll watchers, uh, which also adds uh, new training requirements for them uh, to be certified by the Secretary of State, and also requires them to take an oath uh, saying that they won't disrupt, disrupt the process. It also adds uh, voter ID for mail ballot applications. Voter ID is already required. Uh, when you go to vote at the polls, this just adds that if you're voting by mail as well. Uh, there are some provisions in here to clamp down on <coughs> vote harvesting. And there's also some uh, new regulations for voting assistance. Now, talk to us a little bit about the partisan political fights we've seen throughout this entire process. This has been a very much a team red and team blue issue. What's next in that regard? Are Democrats going to give up now that it's made its way to the governor's desk? 
So I expect it will still be a partisan fight. Uh, we've already seen some threats uh, from lawmakers. I believe Trey Martinez Fisher, a uh, Democrat representative in the House, uh, has essentially said, you know, this is going to be going to the courts next. Uh, there are going to, there are sure to be legal challenges. Um, I'm sure there were actually even some legal challenges that we saw uh, be brought against some other election bills that were actually passed during the regular session earlier this year. Uh, which I think are still uh, lingering in the courts. And so I'm sure this will be the same boat where uh, Democrats who are upset with this legislation will try and push back against it. But at the same time, I think it's also fair to say that uh, a lot of the the partisan fighting that we saw uh, surrounding this whole uh, debacle, this whole bill with uh, Democrats walking out of the House and you have all these lawsuits going back and forth and um, with all that, I think you'll see a lot of shift away from the election bill and more as we turn toward redistricting, which is another big partisan fight. And so, uh, you know, there's already been a lawsuit filed that we'll talk about a little bit later here, but um, I'm sure, you know, the election bill, that fight is still going to be there probably in the courts, but we're going to see a little bit more fighting shift towards other topics uh, like redistricting. Well, thank you for that, Daniel. Uh, Brad, let's continue on this topic of special session, but let's zoom out a little bit. Now, this special session is 30 days long, just like every other, and um, the legislature must finish up its business by this Sunday night um, before that clock expires. Talk to us about which of the priorities of the agenda items that the governor has placed on the call have already passed. So there's quite a bit of them. Um, I think it was like uh, 16 or 17 in total. Um items on the governor's proclamation for this second special session. And of them, uh, you know, obviously number one is election reform that Daniel just talked about. Probably the uh, governor Abbott's second highest priority bill is uh, bail reform. And that is, has passed and um, likely Abbott will, uh, will sign that. Um, I don't see why he wouldn't, but then there's various other ones. So that are, uh, headed to his desk. They are a slate of property tax bills. They give a couple minor uh, property tax reforms. Um, for example, one is a homestead exemption that can be now be used in the first year that a homeowner purchases their property. Um, then we've got uh, the $1.8 billion in border security funding, uh, restrictions on the ability to mail abortion-related drugs, a thirteenth check for retired teachers, new primary or new uh, twenty-two primary election dates, uh, education, virtual learning, and those are just the main ones that uh, that have you know already passed muster and are headed to his desk. I, I assume there's you know various other smaller level uh, bills that apply pertain to these larger topics that we'll see pass as well but those are the main ones now we only have a few days left like we already talked about well what other items are left on the table yeah so a few big ones um the biggest i would say is uh that, that's not really a policy related uh, bill is the legislative funding uh, that must pass the senate they've kind of been holding that up as like a uh something over the head of the house to get them to pass the uh, various bills that, you know, the Senate and governor Abbott would like them to. Uh, one other one that's more obscure, but was specifically on the, the uh, governor's call disposal of radioactive waste. I have a, 
a piece in the works on that. Um, we'll see when it goes up, but it, uh, it goes into detail about what this issue is. And it's actually, um, you know, for those interested in that kind of thing, it's pretty fascinating, but, um, it is a more obscure, uh, item for those that have to pass the house. We've got the critical race theory bill, which I believe is on, um, on the house floor today being Thursday. And, uh, I think that's, that'll be the second or the, Second reading, the first official vote in the House on it, um, that definitely will have to uh, make its way through. Um, then we have uh, the transgender sports bill that would require athletes to um, uh, compete in the gender of their biological sex. And that actually probably died earlier this week in the House Committee on Public Education, when uh, Chairman Harold Dutton, a Democrat, did not advance it along with the critical race theory bill. So that will not be on the floor right now, and it will likely have to wait until a third special session. Um, I should have included that in the likely dead category. But um, then we've got, along with likely dead, we've got vaccine mandate prohibition. I have not seen any movement on either of these proposals. Uh, It's possible that they're just going to wait until the next session. But the governor added that late onto this session's call. Then we have the restriction on local government employment regulations. And that was kind of a a high profile dust up on the House floor on Wednesday. Um, I've got a piece on that in the works. And I I talked about it on Twitter a lot. So if you're interested in seeing what what went down with that, um, it again failed on the House floor, and this time from a point of order by Representative Joe Moody, and that will uh, likely have to be brought back up in the third special session. Which is just around the corner, and we'll uh, be waiting for that as well. Thank you, Brad, for de- detailing that for us. Isaiah, we're going to come back to a very important uh, Supreme Court movement this week that has a lot of people talking, um, and you mentioned it earlier, but let's get back to the heartbeat bill. Um, remind us first how the heartbeat bill works. So we've described it a lot, but again, the general idea is that it bans abortions once cardiac activity can be detected, which usually develops around six weeks into a typical pregnancy. And the main structure of the law's enforcement means that the government or officials of the government or any branch of the government at all, those are all prohibited entirely from enforcing it. So the government cannot enforce the law. It is enforced by civil lawsuits and um, violations include not only performing or inducing an abortion, but also aiding or abetting an abortion that takes place after cardiac activity can be detected. So that's, that's the general skeleton of the law. And um, in these claims, plaintiffs that are suing violators of the law, um, if they prevail, can be awarded damages not less than $10,000. So it's intentionally expensive because this, this is how the law is enforced. Yeah, it's a very unique enforcement. Now, the Supreme Court decision is responding to a lawsuit on the part of several abortion facilities and counselors, but talk to us about how the lawsuit led to this point. So, Whole Woman's Health and Planned Parenthood are probably going to be the most recognizable names among the many plaintiffs that joined in this putative class action lawsuit. And because of the way that the law is built, the chassis of the law, they couldn't just sue the state of Texas or a state agency 
as they've done in, say, Holman's Health versus Hellerstedt. So in this case, they attempted to certify a class, uh, a defendant class of every state judge in Texas, every state clerk in Texas, in addition to suing all the state agencies that regulate employees of these abortion facilities. And they also sued one lone citizen defendant, Markley Dixon, who is most prominently known for pioneering the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn ordinances in Lubbock and elsewhere, but um, in this case was tagged as a defendant because they believed he could credibly sue them for performing abortions, post-heartbeat abortions under the law. So it's a weird lawsuit. And um, it was filed in federal court. And initially that was aimed at a hearing for a preliminary injunction that was going to happen on August 30th. And after the judge denied motions to dismiss by the defendants, then the defendants appealed to the Fifth Circuit and the hearing on the preliminary injunction was canceled. So between the 30th and two days after that, the first of this month, the law took effect. Um, plaintiffs were in kind of a mad scramble to find some way to get an injunction to stop this law. And so with that, they made an emergency petition to the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court just denied it in a 5-4 decision. Tell us a little bit more about the reasoning for the Supreme Court's decision. Well, again, it all goes back to the way the law works and the way that it, it prohibits the government from enforcing it. Under Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which um, is obviously in the jurisprudence of after Roe v. Wade, governments cannot constitutionally, under constitutional precedent from the Supreme Court, uh, create an undue burden in the path of women seeking abortions. So that's why this law is built to where the government is not enforcing it. And um, also the same reason why the mother herself who seeks an abortion cannot be sued under the private enforcement suits. So because of that, because of that structure of the law, um, now I'll just read you a little sentence from the Supreme Court's uh, collected opinion. Federal courts enjoy the power to enjoin individuals tasked with enforcing laws, not the laws themselves. The state has represented that neither it nor its executive employees possess the authority to enforce the Texas law, either directly or indirectly. So whatever injuries the plaintiffs in this case, the abortion providers, are claiming that they will suffer or have suffered, they, strictly speaking, are not coming from the state. And so in that case, there's not really a controversy between the plaintiffs and the defendant state agencies that the Supreme Court can intervene in. Well, Isaiah, thank you for covering that for us. We'll certainly be, um, you know, I think it's been the arguably one of the biggest stories this week and is this Supreme Court decision and, you know, folks on the left have a lot to say and are very, very opposed to this. And um, yeah, the vitriol and the, and the anger from a lot of those on the left is very apparent and those on the right are celebrating it um, and very excited. So very interesting to see those kind of uh, partisan lines drawn uh, so blatantly, even in just the public eye. But thank you for covering that for us and breaking that down. Very unique all around um, circumstances. Hayden, we're going to come to you now. Let's talk about social media censorship. Um, that bill has made its way through the legislature in one way or another. Now talk to us about whether this was a party line vote, um, if there was bipartisan support or opposition. How did this break down? Well, out of the House, the uh, bill passed 77 with 77 eyes, which is, uh, of, of course, there were only about, I think it was 49 nays. So that's... Uh, 
slimmer than usual margin, but it's primarily because a lot of Democrats aren't there because they're protesting the election bill that Daniel was discussing. So the, the vote was narrower than usual also because there were Republicans who were in opposition to this legislation. And in the Senate, the vote was 17 to 14, which is also a narrower than usual margin for a GOP priority item. So the Senate added one amendment that I am receiving word that was just approved by the House as well, that significantly whittled down the definition of censorship. Sorry, let me back up just a little bit. The bill would prohibit social media companies from censoring the content of its users based off of their viewpoints. And it would prevent social media companies from essentially canceling people for having views that don't align with the company. Um, but the, the arguments for and against uh, came down to whether or not this is a line that social media companies should not be allowed to cross. If social media companies are going to put themselves out there as a forum for a debate, as a place to share content, then they cannot then editorialize on the content that is shared. And the First Amendment rights of their users should be prioritized is the arguments in favor. The arguments opposed uh, from Democrats primarily concerned what they call misinformation. In other words, material that they would consider to be insignificant or, excuse me, inconsistent with current science or current, uh, what is currently accepted as, as truth. And the Republican arguments against it, though they ended up being in the minority by a, um, a great deal, were that private businesses should be allowed to conduct their business as they choose, and it would be improper for the government to interfere with that. In the end, though, the, the supporters of the bill within the Republican Party were, were able to get the votes necessary to uh, push it through, but the opposition was led primarily uh, by on the Republican side by Representative Giovanni Capriglione, who spoke and uh, against the bill on the House floor. And then I believe Senator Kel Seliger was the only no vote on the Republican side in the Senate. Now, just to refresh our memories, talk to us about basically what the bill would do. Well, it applies to social media companies with more than 50 million users. It requires a biannual transparency report on the part of social media companies of that size. It also requires that there be a structured appeal system when content is removed. So the definition of censorship in the bill as of now is to block, ban, remove, deplatform, demonetize, deboost, restrict, deny equal access or visibility to, or otherwise discriminate against expression. So social media companies would still be allowed to remove things that run afoul of violent content rules or threatening violence, things like that, pornographic content, anything that would otherwise be uh, prohibited, um, but they cannot restrict the content of their users based on their viewpoints per that definition. And oh. it uses it, it uses existing legal infrastructure to enforce it. There was a similar law in Florida that was ruled unconstitutional but that law had a lot of bells and whistles that this social media censorship bill does not have. I think Representative Kane, who introduced the bill, says 
it exempted Disney and our bill in Texas has no such exemption. It also does not include some of the exorbitant fines that the Florida law that was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis included. So ours is considerably different. The author, uh, Chairman Kane, said that it is it was written specifically with the Florida case in mind to reduce the chances of, be, of it being stricken by a federal court. It's always interesting to see how different states approach the same issue, um, particularly in Texas, as a lot of what uh, happens here in the legislature bleeds into other states. So, Hayden, thank you for covering that for us. Bradley, we're going to talk about uh, quorum breaker chairmanships now. So now that the special session is winding down, the window during which members can be stripped of committee, uh, committee chairmanship positions, any sort of leadership positions in the House after fleeing to D.C. is closing, right? That window's closing. Talk to us about the latest development in this debate. Yeah, it's certainly closing from a real politic perspective. Like, you know, the, the amount of time that they have to levy these punishments is is rapidly waning um, just because eventually it, they're going to move on to other things. And so this week, we saw quite a bit of, of uh, fervor du- uh, dusted up over this. Um, it, specifically, there are two resolutions on the table for the some set of punishments that uh, for that would punish quorum breaking. Uh, the first one filed was HR seventy two by Representative Cody Vasut. That has both proactive as in preventative measures uh, for down the road uh, aspects, as well as retroactive aspects. Specifically, you know, punishing members that broke quorum in this this recent uh, bout. So there's that one on the table that hasn't really moved much. Then we have HR 96 by representative Drew Darby that is limited only to future quorum breaks. It's meant to prevent the same thing happening down the road. Um, Both of them deal with in some way with stripping committee chairmanships. And we've seen a lot of discussion on this. Uh, Like I said, Vasuts hasn't really moved. Darby's however, did have a, a hearing in House administration. I don't think it's moved beyond that, um, at least last I checked. But um, it, that is that, that has moved f- further than Vasut's version. And uh, it's kind of a, a divergent of, of two strategies here. And um, we'll see. Clearly, there's one that is more preferred by House leadership, at least at the moment. You know, in these last few days, we'll see if any movement happens with one or the other. But right now, um, you know, the the political uh, power behind that is uh, is shrinking. Now, talk to us about the pressure and the conversation that has surrounded this issue. Um, where has that stemmed from? How much conversation has there been? How public has the debate been for those who have not been following? It's become very public recently, um, especially recently. Now, back when I, during the quorum break, I did a story. Uh, I spoke to a couple members and they told me that um most members of the House GOP caucus are in favor of punishing the committee chairs, the Democratic committee chairs in the House that broke quorum now. Um, and so that was only a few weeks ago. Um, I would find it hard to believe that that has that needle has moved much. But um, right now, I think there were there are 13 roughly committee chairs that are Democrats in the House, and 10 of those were part of the original quorum break. And so those would be the ones that are, um, you know, uh, up for 
up for uh, punishment on this in this respect. And so um, we also saw the Texas GOP and its new chair, Matt Rinaldi, become very outspoken about this. Um, he has harped on this multiple times and he joined a press conference this week with uh, Representative Vasut alongside much of the, the rest of the House Freedom Caucus and other conservative members and a few other just more general Republicans um, joined as well. And so he joined them and uh, tried to rally the troops behind this. It doesn't seem that much has been done or much has come of that, uh, you know, a few days later. But, you know, there's there's a few days left in the session, so it's possible. Uh, one other thing of real note is that it's not just, you know, the conservatives that are behind this. And of course, the conservatives have generally behind, been behind not appointing Democrats to committee chairmanships in the first place, let alone revoking them after this quorum break. So, but we, we saw a couple um, more just straight down the center Republican uh, organizations, the, the Texas Young Republicans and the Texas College Republicans come out and they supported uh, revoking committee chairmanships of of Texas Democrats, I, if I remember correctly, it went even further than just the ones that broke quorum, just revoking chairmanships from Democrats in general. But they especially echoed the call to revoke the ones um, that broke quorum. And so uh, there's there's a lot more push behind this proposal now, uh, but it doesn't appear that it's going to do much, at least during this session. And, you know, like I said earlier, the if, once we get into the next special session, it, the opportunity will still, of course, be there to do this. But the political capital or the po- political will to do it will just be that much smaller. And uh, the further away you get from from the end of the quorum break, the, the harder it is to implement retroactive penalties. Let's talk about that real fast, because as you, you know, as we've talked about before, the clock is running very low for this special session. And but this is bigger than that. This is political, right? This is Mm -hmm. a this is dealing with the memories of both lawmakers, (laughs) voters. Um, Eventually, this topic just won't be of of issue anymore. And we've talked on the podcast a lot about, okay, well, this quorum break happened. Will voters hold Democrats accountable for those who don't approve? Will it inspire, you know, hardcore Democrats? to come out to the polls to vote for them like what what kind of electoral consequence does this have and in, in the same vein how long does this discussion continue to be had in the house what's the you know what's the clock on this will this be brought up in the next special session do you think i think it will be brought up now i i find it hard to believe that it will gain any more momentum than it already has um you know these these things just tend to dissipate they the sting of the momentary sting of them tends to leave uh, the minds of the legislators. And, uh, you know, there will be those, of course, that that continue to beat this drum and and honestly have, have beaten this drum on uh, quorum breaking before. Representative Tinderholt has proposed legislation to, to tamp down on uh, quorum breaks every session since 2017. And the um, so I, I assume that will continue. But the reason that this became such a, a possibility was the timeliness of this quorum break and the effect it had on the legislature. Um, There was a a poll done today that I just see the result come out on and it's um, Texas voters oppose the quorum break 47 to 36 percentages. And so that shows that, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty widespread for 
how many are are opposed to what the Democrats did. Um, obviously, Texas is a Republican-leaning state and or solidly Republican state, and so naturally they're going to um, you know tend to side with their their party um, or the ones on their side of things. And but but still, you know, I think this could play a role in the midterm elections. Now, just like the legislators, voters. Uh, memories only last so long and the sting of this will will eventually fade away you know we'll start talking about this quorum break like we have talked about the uh what was it 2003 quorum break um yeah and so you know it's eventually just going to fade away but uh i i'm sure this will continue to be a topic in the legislature to one degree or another well, especially as the next legislator legislature convenes in 2023, I guarantee you at the beginning of the rules fight, which has happened at the beginning of every legislative session, this will yep. come up. And it is worth noting, we talked about this before, the speaker uh, is in a precarious position in terms of being reelected. Yeah. Um, there was a contingency of uh, Republicans who were not on board with his speakership and backed another candidate. And so those who elected him were those on the more conservative wing of his party and Democrats, right? Yeah. So there is certainly something to be said for him wanting to make sure that those Democrats, those influential Democrats in leadership uh, are pleased with him yeah. and want to reelect him. So that's also part of the part of the deal here and what's at stake for Speaker Phelan. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Bradley, for for covering that for us, Daniel. Let's talk about redistricting. There is a new lawsuit that's been filed by some Democrats. Talk to us about it. So two Democratic senators, Senators Roland Gutierrez from San Antonio and Sarah Eckhart from Austin, have filed a lawsuit in a federal district court in Austin to block the legislature uh, from adopting new maps this fall and essentially make the lawmakers wait until 2023 to draw new maps. And in the meantime, uh, they're asking the court to issue new temporary maps for the election that obviously comes before the next regular session in 2023. Um, So that is what the lawsuit is that they have filed. Um, We will see what comes of it, though. Absolutely. So then what is the legal argument that they're dealing with here? So for anybody who's been paying attention to uh, redistricting this year, and we've even written on it earlier, it really doesn't come as a, as a surprise, the legal argument that they're making that redistricting can't actually happen in a special session now. Uh, if you look at the text of the Texas Constitution, it says that redistricting shall be completed during its first regular session after the publication of each U.S. decennial census. Um, so the first regular session after the census is public, published usually comes uh, in the middle of a, a regular session, and that's when lawmakers deal with redistricting. Uh, but because of the delays this year, that hasn't actually been the case. The next, the, the first regular session after the publication of the census this time is actually going to be not until 2023 because the numbers weren't released until a couple weeks ago. So uh, because of the delays with that, with the release of that data, um, the two Democratic senators are arguing that essentially the legislature doesn't have the constitutional authority to make uh, new maps until the next regular session. Uh, Now we'll see how this actually plays out in the courts. Uh, One of the things that might uh, go against the lawsuit is precedent because the legislature has done redistricting, uh, you know, different aspects of it uh, in either, you know, a middle of a 
a, a regular session in the middle of a decade or during a special legislative session uh, immediately after a uh, regular session, which is what we saw in 2011. So all that to say, uh, you know, redistricting is going to continue being a legal fight. Uh, that's the argument that Gutierrez and Eckhart have been put out, that it goes against the Constitution. There's some precedent that would uh, suggest otherwise, but it hasn't actually been tested in courts uh, because we haven't really been in a situation quite like what we're seeing this year. So we'll see how that plays out, uh, and I'm sure it'll be interesting to say the least. Thank you, Daniel, so much. Hayden, let's talk about a special election uh, that happened this week for a House district that we've been watching pretty darn closely. But talk to us about House District 10, the background of the race, and why the heck there was an election in the middle of August. Well, this is the off-season for elections, if you will. Um, Trying to honor Brad and use a sports analogy, but the reason there is an election in the middle of uh, 2021 here in, in August and then a runoff, which will be coming up soon, is former state representative, now Congressman Jake Elsey, uh, ran for Congress just a few months after he took office in House District 10, which includes um, Ellis County and part of a small part of Henderson County. So when he vacated the office, having been elected to Congress, he um, left the seat empty which spurred a special election by Governor Abbott. And it was a very short campaign period, only three or four weeks that they had to run for this seat. And that is what led up to the August 31st special election. Talk to us about the election results and what this means going forward. Well, the results were um, that it was inconclusive. Um, They... (laughs) Were, well, it wasn't inconclusive. It just went to a runoff. So they will continue to run until um, the day of the runoff, which will be set by Governor Abbott. Uh, the final election results were that Brian Harrison came in first. He ended up with 41% of the vote, about 4,600 uh, votes. And then uh, John Ray, who is the former incumbent of the seat, received 36% of the vote. Um, about 4,000 ballots. He was in the office as recently as January because he was the immediate predecessor of Elsie. Um, if that gives you a time frame of just how how brief Elsie was in the office. Um, and then the other candidates came um, far behind. The, there was one Democrat in the uh, race, Pirina um, Otiano, and she finished third with 11%. Um, of the ballots. She received only about 1,300 votes. Um, And then there were a few other candidates in the race. Uh, They made uh, Kevin Griffin, a Republican, got 8%. Uh, Midlothian City Councilman Clark Wycliffe um, got 3% of the vote. And then there were some other candidates that received uh, less than 1% and another one who had endorsed, had dropped, her name was on the ballot, uh, but she endorsed Brian Harrison, who was the uh, chief of staff to Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar during the Trump administration. And he also has the endorsement of Ted Cruz. And then Ray um, was in the seat for six years and is now running for his former seat. And he has the endorsement of various uh, political action committees and interest groups um, in Austin. So those are the dynamics of the race. Um, And it's just a, a two man race now. And they will continue to campaign uh, probably for the next few weeks. Um, And we're just waiting for Governor Abbott to call that runoff. 
Awesome, Hayden. Thank you for that. Isaiah, let's talk about public school mask mandates. We've seen all sorts of different approaches to this, but primarily we've seen school districts issue blanket mask mandates for students, uh, you know, in, in opposition and defiance of Governor Abbott's executive order. But we're seeing some new approaches from different school districts and they've been experimenting with rules that lets that let parents opt their children out. Um, tell us about where some of these districts are and how their mandates work. Right. So like you mentioned, uh, Dallas ISD, I think was the first one that got a lot of press after, um, shortly after GA38 was issued, which prohibits mask mandates, consolidating previous orders. Dallas ISD decided we're going to mandate them anyway for just about everybody on campus. And now I don't even know the total number of school districts that are doing that in Texas now. It's, it's quite a few, but, um, there are some districts that have implemented conditional mandates, you know, if they meet some certain threshold of case numbers or whatnot. And, um, among those and among some others, there are also districts that are sending parents an opt-out form where if they fill out, you know, in some cases, a reason why they don't want their child to, to wear a mask or um, anyway, they, they can turn to this form to the district or the school and uh, just opt their kids out. So Plano ISD is one school board that's done this. Uh, Corpus Christi implemented a similar rule that took effect just a couple days ago. Round Rock ISD had this rule for a little while, and then they recently narrowed it to only allow exemptions for health reasons, um, asthma, I expect, things like that. Uh, Corsicana ISD is another example. That's near where I grew up. Um, so in their example, uh, we, we included quotes from their form, and it, it just says, I understand that as a result of this decision, my student will not be required to wear a mask while at school and or during school activities when such requirement is in place. And that's, that's the form that parents sign. Talk to us about whether these are technically legal under the uh, governor's latest executive order. Uh, strictly speaking, no. They are obviously a compromise, but GA38 says explicitly, no governmental entity, including a county, city, school district, and public health authority, and no governmental official may require any person to wear a face covering or to mandate that another person wear a face covering. So even though these mandates are softer than requirements that everybody wear a mask on campus, which is the more typical response, they're still not quite legal under GA38. However, TEA guidance recently released says that the mask provisions of GA38 aren't being enforced right now, at least by the agency, until litigation is complete, because there are a lot of school districts and localities that are embroiled in lawsuits with Abbott in the state right now over the authority to issue mask mandates. Uh, the Supreme Court of Texas got one step closer to completing that litigation recently in San Antonio, and we'll talk about that soon. Uh, but what's interesting about this compromise is that it appeared to anticipate a legislative compromise, because right now the state is wrestling with ideas on how to how to deal with mask mandates, whether or not they should be legal or not. So a Republican, Jeff Leach, filed a bill in the Texas House that originally would have prohibited mask mandates in state law, and one of his Democratic colleagues, Harold Dutton, filed a bill that would essentially codify in statute what think, what's happening right now. It would let school districts adopt mask policies. And the two of these the two of these guys expressed willingness to reach a compromise where districts could adopt mask mandates with a chance for parents to opt their children out. So this system potentially could be what happens statewide. 
Wonderful. Well, Isaiah, thanks for covering that. Certainly interesting to see the different legal approaches taken by many school districts across the state. Brad, we're going to come to you. This has been a story that got a lot of traction. A lot of readers cared about this story, but um, TxDOT, the Department of Transportation, announced this week that it parted ways with their vendor in charge of billing for the TextTag uh, toll road service. What are the details of this? So the main reason for the termination was uh, millions of dollars in overcharges to Texas drivers f- that uh, use the TextTag service. It allows you to basically prepay and then um, get a, a lower rate uh, when you use the tolls. And so um, multiple instances, there have been uh, many overcharges and uh, eventually push came to shove and TextDOT parted ways with IBM. Um in the short term, they entered an emergency contract with SAP Software Solutions and the Department of Information Resources Managed Security Services uh, to kind of you know, a stopgap measure to fill the void before they find a new vendor to handle billing. But um, yeah, it's pretty big news. And uh, obviously, many people across Texas use the tollways. Uh, sometimes you don't even realize you're on a tollway before <laughs> before you get the bill. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, you can definitely, uh, it, it can come as a shock to get a bill that, um, that either you, that, that is either higher than, um, than what you should be charged or it, a bill that is sent to you that you weren't even in the area when it happened. I've heard stories about that as well. So um, all in all, it's a, it's a big step in a different direction. And uh, clearly the, uh, the Texas department of of transportation uh, has kind of fed up with the vendor. Well, and it seems that uh, IBM had a lot of words to say itself, this vendor. Talk to us about their reaction. They basically pointed the finger back at TxDOT. Um, They said that, I quote, the success of any information technology project depends on each of the participants filling its obligations. IBM's performance on this project has been hampered by the inability of TxDOT to do so. Now, they went into zero detail about what those obligations that were uh, that were failed um, uh, included, they neither did TxDOT really provide much detail into um, much of what the errors were, other than you know these overcharges happened. Um, I think the total was about eleven point seven million dollars in reimbursements that had to be made earlier this year, and so just a classic example of. Two, uh, two entities pointing the fingers at one another and, um, you know, it's, it's going to end and, um, the eventually we'll have a new vendor and I'm sure that will not be all that big of news by the time that occurs. But, um, yeah, yeah, there's, there's seems to be not really any resolution between the two parties on this. Well, and if one thing, uh, if there's one thing Texans can agree on, it's that t- people don't like toll roads, right? That's just kind of the nature of it. And the Department of Transportation has not been uh, historically uh, forthright with a lot of these different kinds of toll road issues and billing problems. So, yeah. interesting to see what will happen next, um, and, especially and, as a new vendor comes in. Right. And just a personal anecdote for for toll roads. It's interesting when I first moved here because I'd never seen uh, a toll road that kind of just picked up where a regular road left off. You had to ex- actually like merge onto the the toll road. There was a, a checking station that you had to pass through. So it, it, you can very easily here in Texas just happen on upon a toll road and not even realize it. Um, so I can see why why Texans would be irritated 
by that, and especially if they're getting overcharged. Talk about the opt-in, opt-out situation. That's that's an that's an example right there. Exactly. Thank you, Bradley. Isaiah, we're going to come back to you. You already uh, foreshadowed this topic. Let's get into it. Um, but, but Bayer County um, has been in the news a lot, uh, particularly in dealing with these um, mask mandates. You mentioned earlier that the Supreme Court of Texas got one step closer to making a definitive ruling on the governor's order prohibiting mask mandates. What did they decide and what led up to it? Yeah, I know you all have all just been on the edge of your seats about this one for the past <laughs> eight minutes or so. So the Supreme Court of Texas has not made a definitive ruling on this. I want to get that out of the way because these can be confusing and they take multiple steps that seem to be identical and they aren't. But in an order that they issued last Thursday, the court sided with Governor Abbott for the moment in his fight against mask mandates in Bear County by staying mask mandates in, in the locality. City and county officials have been suing the state for the authority to require masks namely in schools. And um, so they sued the state. It went up to the fourth court of appeals and Abbott claimed, interestingly enough, in his uh, writ request to the Supreme court that uh, the fourth court of appeals denied his motion a mere 11 minutes after he filed it. And so these cases have been moving rather quickly. Um, It's, it's dizzying. It's, it's hard to get a hold of. That's, that's what I'm trying to do is (laughs) straight it out. (laughs) So um, anyway, the Supreme Court stayed the order. The case is still pending. But for the moment, um, the court has denied Bear County the authority to require masks. Got it. Um, now, talk to us about the Texas Disaster Act specifically. This is all kind of wrapped up in that. What have been the arguments surrounding the act in this case? Well, it's like kind of like what Brad mentioned earlier. People have got short memories. And I don't think this has completely gone away, but there seem to be a pretty big swell of bipartisan support for reform to the Texas Disaster Act during the first regular session. And now maybe not so much, I don't know. But um, it was interesting. There are a lot of Democrats and Republicans, I'm thinking of politicians as ideologically disparate as Nathan Johnson and Matt Schaefer, who are both calling for reform to the TDA. And um, San Antonio made similar claims in their original complaint, in their original lawsuit. They asked um, for, as alternative relief, a declaration that the Texas Disaster Act is unconstitutional, if not a judgment that it allows them to do what they want to do. So far, um, well, explicitly it says that county judges, namely as, as local officials, are the governor's agents in executing state response during disasters. And so that's empowered. Um, I remember it popped up in the lawsuit between El Paso County and the state over shutdown and lockdown orders there. And um, the county had argued that the TDA supported their lockdowns. And so now San Antonio, now that Abbott has, you know, if we remember he himself issued a statewide mask mandate, then ended it. And now he's ended it in school districts as well. Um, now that we're on this side of it, Bear County and San Antonio officials where the Texas disaster act previously empowered them to issue masks, allegedly um, are now fighting against it, arguing that it is unconstitutional. So it's an interesting switch. Um, but it's, it was kind of a memory blast to, to read again, like, oh, I remember when there was all this mounting pressure against the TDA and that kind of slipped under the rug, I think, during the specials because Abbott's probably not going to put it on there. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so that's, I, w- I was kind of expecting, I think a lot of people were expecting a legislative approach to TDA reform. And now it seems like that might happen in the courts because it's a central issue in San Antonio's complaint. And so the Supreme Court 
if they finally rule on this case anytime soon, is going to have to address it. You're you're absolutely right. And going back to the beginning of the regular session, you ask anybody in Austin and even those watching throughout the state what one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest um, issue the legislature would be tackling or talking about, at the very least debating um, with bipartisan support, was going to be emergency power reform, um, particularly in regard to the governor's executive actions taken during COVID-19. So interesting to see this back in the news. And you're right, the legislature, you know, a lot of things that uh, were supported just did not end up materializing. So Isaiah, thank you for covering that for us. Um, Let's get to a fun topic, boys. This weekend is Labor Day weekend. Do you guys have any fun Labor Day weekend plans? Um, Is there something, you know, if you don't, if you're just laying low, is there anything that you want to do? You want to check off your summer bucket list before summer ends? Well, it's not really my bucket. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <Isaiah. laughs> um, it's it's not quite my bucket list, but um, I'm going to be dog sitting a very large German Shepherd this weekend uh, while some friends of mine in San Antonio go. I don't know where they're going, actually, but they're gone and I'm going to watch the dog. So <laughs> That's awesome. That'll be so, so fun. Do you like big dogs? Is that something that you're comfortable with is having a, a giant animal that you get to spend time with? <laughs> um, obviously I like friendly dogs big dogs tend to be friendlier but uh, that's not <laughs> a hard and fast rule but this one is very excitable he's he's a fun dog that's awesome well that'll be fun Bradley I am heading back home again uh, second time in like two weeks um, I am going back for Labor Day weekend to see my grandparents um, my grandpa just retired he sold, he owned a, a luncheonette, a restaurant in Jamestown, New York, and just sold it. So now he is living it up in retirement. And I'm sure he is, you know, in a jolly good mood. And so this weekend will be a lot of fun. That's fantastic. Um, Hayden, do you have anything fun going on this weekend? No, no. I'm going to have a boring, <laughs> boring Labor Day. And I could pretend that, you know, I have all these exciting plans, but in reality, I will probably just stay home. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I might go visit some places in the Austin area that I haven't been yet, that I have lived here for eight months and there are some things I want to go do, but haven't had a chance to yet. So I might go go visit some new restaurants. Like what? I don't know. Damn it. You, have, you haven't figured this out? <laughs> Brad was so insistent on asking the follow-up question. Like what? Like what? It was like a broken record. And that was skillfully I, ignoring I, him. I thought he didn't hear me the first time. I my segment, honestly. What, Hayden? <laughs> oh, we lost Hayden. Oh, well. Um, well, love that. Daniel Friend, is there anything exciting that you're, you have going on? Rather, what is something you want to do before summer ends that's on your bucket list? You know, I'd love to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, maybe you can just whip one yeah. up in a couple days. In fact, I don't think I want to just like write a book. I'm going to turn it into like an audio thing. It'll be fun. Ooh. That's what I'm going to do. <clears throat> I'm going well, that to sounds like a, a good idea. So I know that's kind of been my go-to answer for the past two years, but it it works pretty good, right? Exactly. (laughs) 
Always a good one to fall back on. Um, I'm going up to Dallas this weekend. Two of my best friends growing up uh, in Washington State moved to Dallas with their husbands. And so we will all be going to... Um, or I'll be going up to Dallas to see them. We'll be spending the weekend together. And then maybe Monday, I'll, I have an inflatable kayak. Um, we'll be back in town on Monday. And hopefully, I'll be able to bring out the inflatable kayak and, and go out on the river. It's I've already done it once this year, but I want to do it again before the summer ends. So, that's on my little summer bucket list. That's pretty easy um, to accomplish. So, there you go. Yeah, we're, well, we're hoping. Although uh, the, the parking for Labor Day and kayaks and water and access in Austin will be a little bit of an ask. So we'll see if that actually works out. Just portage that boat down there all the way from wherever you live. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, uh, yeah, I'll inflate it ahead of time and then just drop it from a tree on the water. That's what I'll do. Well, gentlemen, thank you for all your insight, your reporting. We appreciate you, folks. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Texas.